0: This podcast is produced on Gadigal Land.
1: What I'm hoping is that, yes, people can see the possibilities in those careers. And, you know, if I think back to the original motivation for this, it was, you know, people can see a woman that's older, that's ethnic on TV doing this with police that they it's outside of most people's experience
0: you're listening to short black with me sandra sully good women great chat g'day listeners in this episode of short black i'm thrilled to introduce you all to dr carla lopez who is a forensic psychologist G'day, Carla. Thanks for giving up your time here at Short Black and telling us all about the world of forensic psychology. Now, can I just say, as a fan of crime shows, we all try to solve these crime dilemmas ourselves. You're at the forefront of it. Does it drive you mad when everyone just wants to do your job?
1: Hi, Sandra. Thank you for having me today. And absolutely not. I am one of those people. I just can't give that up even while I'm watching crime shows.
0: So what does a forensic psychologist do? Explain it for us all who don't quite understand, because it is a pretty unique role.
1: It is pretty unique. And I would probably say that my role is even more unique in a lot of ways. So usually when we talk about forensic psychology, we're talking about where psychology kind of meets or intersects with the law. So that can be in terms of criminal investigations, criminal court proceedings, assessments, and recommendations around sentencing, and also a lot of family court related matters. So it's police, it's uh, psychology together.
0: And what came first for you?
1: Funnily enough, I was always going to be a psychologist. It's just that originally I thought that what I wanted to do was have my own practice and listen to people's distress and problems and to really help them through that. And then about third year at university, I became really fascinated with crime and really human motivation, what drives people to do what they do. And I don't know why, but very quickly that became why do people do very extreme things or commit very extreme crimes? And once I started reading all of the crime books and reading about infamous serial murderers, I really haven't looked back, that sounds not great. For my own psychology, I think
0: <laughs> it could be a little bit gruesome, and I guess sometimes that's got to be a really tough part of your job
1: uh yeah it it has been over the years. I have been in this for over twenty years now, so I think I was very fortunate early on in my career that I worked with a very close knit team and we were all sort of starting off in the forensic psychology field together, so we developed really great supports and really good strategies to get through the really tough times around reading details of of crimes, of significant harm that had been done to very innocent people. And you know basically learn to be able to talk through that, to have strategies outside of work to deal with any distress around that and just come back and do it again the next day.
0: I wonder if things like body language and facial expressions, I mean, the whole gamut must be before you. What are you drawn to first or just is it the most obvious thing?
1: I have found that those elements are easier to discern over time. So I would say that it's the kind of thing that you think as a young psychologist, you're just going to be able to understand and you're going to be able to pick up on those elements and make sense of it immediately. And I don't know if I was just a very slow off the mark, but it took a while for me to feel like I could do that. So I think for you know, in the first instance, it's really listening very carefully to what people are saying. But actually, looking at what their body is doing, what their facial expression is doing, you know, where their eyes are going, and really understanding whether that they are presenting a coherent picture and whether what they're saying is something that they're comfortable with, it's something that they feel is truthful, that they really believe in, or whether there are additional questions that I might be able to ask and delve into that a bit more.
0: Over the years, have you been able to sort of pinpoint a moment where people derail into the world of crime? Or is it all within us? It's just circumstance.
1: That's such an interesting question. I thought that I would be able to see a very distinct pathway. And in some fairly rare instances, that is the case. You can see, based on very early experiences, the lack of um, supports, role models, you know, really significant negative situations in formative years where people go down that track. But ultimately, given the right circumstances and a lot of different aspects coming together both from you know the levels of distress our ability to deal with that the consequences and our ability to think through that there is potential in all of us for breaking the law but to what extent it really depends on a range of different things the people that engage in very extreme behavior and very significant crime Usually it's something that has been building up in them over some period of time and, you know, closer to the event there is a trigger or a number of triggers that kind of lead to the ultimate behaviour that they engage in and, and the harm they cause.
0: I often wonder, and correct me if I'm wrong, the role that empathy plays in determining someone's ability to cross the line. If they don't demonstrate empathy, then there's something not quite right. Fair point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that empathy is a, is a widely studied aspect, I guess, in, in the crime world. I started off my career in, in the sexual offending world, which is pretty heavy for a young psychologist, if I can put it that way. And, you know, there was a lot of study around whether people who commit those kind of offenses actually have the ability to empathize. And uh, ultimately, I think, you know, the empirical work that was done in that field Really determined that they absolutely have the ability but it's something that needs to be suspended during the time that the offense is occurring because it is still extremely confronting for offenders to face the impact and the harm and the damage that they're doing to someone at the time of offending but when we go back to your question about a lack of empathy being almost useful in that context It's absolutely true. You know, the people that are least likely to be able to be rehabilitated are psychopaths. And, you know, whilst in the, perhaps in popular culture, we believe that anyone who commits serious crime is a psychopath. Thankfully, that's not the case. Psychopaths are a very small subset of an offending cohort, and they certainly exhibit a range of very particular traits, one of which is a lack of empathy and an ability to take advantage of others and and really not you know, be quite callous and and not really care about the consequences for anyone else and and purely act in their own self-interest. You
0: mentioned the word psychopath and uh, I've come across the odd sociopath. What's the difference?
1: Uh, So sociopath is really... Well, it's a matter of labels, to be honest, Andra, so it just depends which book you read. I mean, I think that the definitions are fairly aligned, but neither of them actually appear as a diagnosis in the um, the current Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. They're understood to be a set of personality characteristics and behavioral traits that people exhibit that are essentially around what I've just described. It's around being, you know, callous and caring and empathic people who are able to take advantage of others with absolutely no qualms.
0: So you're actually interviewing the alleged perpetrators. Do you get that involved or do you literally witness the interviews and then make your own determinations?
1: I've done both. Yeah. So for the early part of my career it's, it you know was always about interviewing and about doing lots of assessments and uh, you know what I loved about the assessment related work is that particularly in the last few years that I um that I did that I was dealing with the very serious end of offending, both in terms of sexual and violent offending. And it was really about putting together a huge puzzle. You know, By the time that I was interviewing these people, there was a lot of material that had been written about them. There were previous tests, there were lots of other assessments. There's a lot of behavioral evidence that you would need to sort through to really put it together what is actually driving this behavior for somebody. And where are they likely to go next? Because by the time that I get involved, people are interested in, are they going to continue to do this? What is the likelihood that they will continue to harm somebody? What is it that we can do to mitigate that risk and rehabilitate somebody if that's still a possibility? And unfortunately, in some cases, that's very difficult.
0: Surely the work must be all-consuming. Do you work on one case at a time or do you have several ongoing at any given time?
1: So life is a little different for me now as a consultant. So now I think I I do deal with the work in the way that you um, anticipated, which is looking at patterns and big problems and innovative solutions around that. When I was involved in casework, it wasn't one case at a time. You know, each assessment, yes, is it's a case of its own, um, and you you have to look at the phenomenon like in front of you, but there were always lots of clients, lots of work to do. And in fact, when we look at the treatment side of things, I was generally working with a group. So it was a group therapy setting. And therefore you were holding a lot of information in your head at any one time to be able to run a session and hopefully drive behavioral change forward for more than one person at a time.
0: I'm not trying to be controversial, but I'm just curious. Do you believe people who commit extreme crimes are capable of being
1: rehabilitated? You're probably not gonna like my answer, Sandra, but it depends. Oh, I think that's perfectly understandable. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really does depend and it really depends on what's driven the behavior in the first instance, some of their initial life circumstances and their willingness to do that. And it also depends on the crime in a lot of ways. You know, there are people that I've seen that are so incredibly entrenched in there and invested in the behavior that even though they might say to you because they think it's the right thing to say that they are willing to change it's evident in everything that they've done in all of their history and all of their behavior in their patterns of thinking that they're actually either not motivated to change or not able to do so but there are others that actually have that in them but i would say that it's certainly easier to rehabilitate somebody earlier on in an offending career than it is later on.
0: Is there a case that's really stuck with you or a couple? And if so, can
1: you tell us about them? Uh, There are several, I think. I mean, I'll tell you about a couple of them. And, And interestingly enough, I still do training for police. So I'm very passionate about police having the best available evidence to do their job. You know, police have a difficult job. There's a huge demand and there's not a huge amount of hours for training and ongoing development. So when I have an opportunity to help them, I do. The reason I bring that up is because I often speak about particular cases to exemplify what I'm trying to get across, to you know, to teach essentially. So some of these cases that I use are the ones that have really stuck with me. So I'll mention two, and one in particular is probably a case that people wouldn't really empathize with and, and certainly wouldn't have you know, and I'm not expecting the audience to, but I remember speaking to somebody that had committed some serious offences and, and, you know, they were very harmful offences. And I won't mention the detail because I don't think it'd be very palatable to the audience. But what I do remember is uh, for the first time, really recognising in that person, the distress that they felt at their recognition that they had caused harm and their willingness to really do whatever they could to seize that behavior, to ensure that it didn't happen again. But at the same time, struggling with the you know, fantasies and desire to do so. It's a moment that's really stuck with me because it wasn't really something that I was expecting to really recognize that really raw human emotion in somebody whose behavior I really couldn't reconcile. You know, It was something so far from anything that I would ever consider doing or so far from anything that I consider acceptable, but I really recognized in that person at that moment, the real struggle. Like I can see, I don't want to cause this harm, can see that that's a bad thing, but it's really hard for me to stop.
0: Some sort of odd compulsion to continue.
1: That's right. And as I say, I don't expect anyone to really kind of empathize with that because harm is harm, you know, and often it's very innocent people that are being harmed by these offenders. But it was just a really human moment that stuck with me you know in a lot of ways helped me understand what was going on and and how that translates to other people that committed those kind of offenses as well i mean there's a lot to be said for experience right indeed and then the other the other case that i think about is really one where there were kind of two offenders acting together and one of the offenders was actually a woman And the phenomenon, I guess, of women engaging in really harmful offences against other people for various reasons is of interest to me. I think it's something that we understand not as well as we do with male offending.
0: Why is it so uncomfortable for us, do you think, to accept that women can be just as callous? Yes,
1: absolutely. And I think that, you know, I became pretty fascinated with that, if that's the right word, pretty early on in my career and so any time that I've had an opportunity to work with female offenders, I think that's something that I've taken up. And in fact, you know, I when I was in the justice system, tried really hard to kind of get a group, a therapy group happening because I wanted to see how did that compare? Do we actually know enough and understand enough about the way that they offend and the motivations behind it to offer some treatment that might actually work for them? And I learned, which is, you know, backed up by the literature that we have, that actually there's a lot of things that are very different, but that in itself has been useful to me going forward because that's exactly what it can teach other people. You know, my experience then enables me to say, actually, you can't just assume that everything that we know about males offending translates perfectly to the way that women operate. It doesn't happen that way.
0: Can you give me some examples of the differences between men and women?
1: I think one of the things is really about the nature of the distortions, if you like. So when we talk about offending, often we talk about people have to be able to kind of explain it in different ways. We call them cognitive distortions or thinking errors. It's a way that people kind of twist their thinking towards the behavior that they wanna engage in, right? And I give really simple examples, like if somebody is going to speed down the road because they're running late, they're not gonna be thinking "I'm putting everyone around me at risk. I you know, absolutely shouldn't be doing this. They're gonna be saying, I'm a really good driver. I hardly ever do anything like this. I really need to get there. You know, there's gonna be all this justification in our own minds about why we're doing what we're doing. So think about that phenomenon in an offender kind of amped up towards a behavior that they know is wrong because they live in the same society we do. They know it's wrong. So the nature of those cognitive distortions tends to be quite different between males and females. And, you know, with females, what I've seen is like a higher level of emotional investment and the way that they need to convince themselves that the harm that they perpetrate, well, that there is no harm, that actually the, the victim might actually be invested in, in what they're doing as well. So that's one of the differences, the way that victims are, are targeted, if you like, you know, it's going to be people that are closer to them that are easier to manipulate. And certainly with women, there's less of a reliance on physically overpowering somebody. So there are lots of different ways, you know, nuances that are different in women.
0: So do women then engage more in psychological and emotional contexts?
1: Well, certainly that's the context that I've worked in. So I really probably should have clarified that the things that I'm talking about really relate to interpersonal crime. So there's a huge range of uh, of different crime that people engage in, but I'm not so much talking about. Things that are instrumental in terms of drugs or breaking into houses or theft or even organised crime. So I'm talking pretty specifically about interpersonal crime when you, you know, you're in the same room, the same space with the person that you're harming, but in that moment you've convinced yourself it's okay.
0: We all know the youth crime crisis across Australia is a real problem, and there's been some recent reports about kids being left not in foster care, but kids who have lost their parents and they're in institutions and And they're essentially not given access to the outside world. They're not given enough food. They're not given enough care. They're not given enough attention. And I just see that as a recipe for disaster. The facts prove that that's the case. The easy answer is yes.
1: We are dealing with associated crises, I think, in this country. And I, I, I don't know if that applies across the world, but I'll try and put it as succinctly as I can. We are dealing with a substantial family violence problem in this country. And unfortunately, part of what that means is that we've got a lot of kids that are being exposed to traumatic experiences very early on in their lives. It also means a lot of instability in their early life. For a lot of them, it might actually mean that they are removed from their own homes. For some of those kids, you know, the ones that are not lucky enough to retain some level of stability, to have a supportive parent, to have somebody that can take care of them, those are the kids that end up in those situations, right, that you were talking about. Out of home care, in uncertain circumstances, inconsistent levels of care. And the fact that they've experienced early trauma also means that it interferes with their ability to develop socially to learn at school, to um, essentially gain the skills and learn the things that they need to, to be able to contribute to society in a really meaningful way. They can't find good role models. That's right. I remember working, so I did work with um, young people before I started working with police, actually young people that had um, perpetrated fairly serious offenses as well. And one of the things that struck me was that when we're talking about trauma, when we're talking about our children experiencing trauma early on in their lives, one of the key things that it affects is their ability to learn. So they can go to school, but because they are in a heightened state, they're in a fight or flight state all of the time, and that is functional to a point, but that in itself prevents them from being able to learn. And that is going to set them back. They're going to be at a disadvantage, potentially for the rest of their lives, just based on that. Now, when you're talking about kids that can't learn Socially, they will struggle, they will try and find the other people around them that also, you know, feel outcasts or are on the outer. And unfortunately, what it can certainly at many instances lead to is crime, you know, testing the boundaries, transgressing those rules that have been put to them that they don't understand, and also just getting things that they feel that they deserve because the world hasn't treated them well. And it can spiral. God, I sound like, it sounds very doom and gloom, Sandra. <laughs> right, so let's lift the tone.
0: It's not doom and gloom, Carla, but um, I do want to pivot if I could. One of the things I find absolutely fascinating is your role in 10 Series Hunted. How did that come about? I mean, clearly you have a forensic mind and you're an analytical person, but what made you decide you wanted to um, you know, be on the show as an expert hunter with an elite team chasing fugitives who are aiming to evade capture for 21 days? <laughs>
1: I've been asked that question a fair bit actually and I will say it's probably just good fortune because it was actually one of the senior producers that approached me on LinkedIn of all things and put this idea to me about potentially being on the show that I had never heard of and if I can give you a little bit of context around that we were in the middle of the second year of lockdowns here in Melbourne and I know that the rest of the country probably didn't experience lockdowns to the level that we did. We didn't. Not that I'm using this as a justification. I actually had been working from home for the better part of two years and I thought that this sounded like something that was very interesting and exciting and for the first time in more than 10 years, I wasn't working in the police force and I was there, I could determine whether I was involved or not without seeking permission.
0: (laughs) The first series that came out was an absolute cracker mm-hmm. and you know you want to work out what are the obvious mistakes people make. Yes. You know aside from carrying a phone and a 24-hour location tracker <laughs> what are the other silly things most of us do without even realising?
1: Well I think that the majority of us are actually a lot more predictable than we like to think. No. <laughs> well I mean obviously the you know the caveat is that I have to know something about them to be able to say that right? But We like to stick to things that are comfortable, familiar and things that we really value. And so once we understand what those things are, what people value, what is important to them, the people that are around them, the networks that they have, where they're likely to devote their time and their effort, then we are reasonably predictable. I think the mistakes that fugitives make as a result of that is really just sticking to those routines and to their preferences. And if we look at the opposite of that, where they succeed, it's really pushing themselves outside their comfort zone.
0: So when you look at other series of hunted and you look at who won, you know why and how, or was some of it luck?
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I think to a point, yes, you do in terms of like, you can see why people have gone down a particular track in terms of the plan on the run. However... Things don't always go to plan. One of the big characteristics that people have to sort of have in their arsenal, I think, is the ability to pivot. So you have to have a a good level of resilience. You know, when things go wrong, are you going to be able to bounce back? And also a level of emotional stability that is going to be uh, challenged quite often on the run. So both from like the physical discomfort that you're feeling, the uncertainty, but also the fight or flight response that is triggered by the, the fact that you are essentially being hunted. You know, we, we can't help that. We know that there is no harm that will come to them as a result of being captured, but their aim is to be able to evade capture. And so the fear of doing that is something that's going to physiologically drive that response and their ability to manage that is going to be crucial in being able to remain on the run. So are our
0: mobile phones still the main things that give us away regardless of whether location settings are on or off?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, your mobile phones are a tracking device, no doubt at all. But I think it's also the people around you, right? Because, you know, if we have reasonable um, idea that somebody that you're going to meet up with somebody or that there's a particular location that might be of interest, if they have a mobile phone, they're also trackable. But it's also known locations, so places that are familiar to you in a situation where you're feeling challenged and feeling nervous and paranoid, it's much easier to stick to places that you know and that you're familiar with. It's been an interesting challenge for us with interstate fugitives, of course, because you know, whilst those who live in Victoria, we might be able to determine or kind of understand a little bit about where that comfort zone might be, where the networks are physically located. might be available to render assistance it's a little bit different with interstate fugitives where their immediate loved ones are not around them so we have to go that extra step and put in a lot more effort to determine well which places are going to be attractive to them and why have any of these fugitives stumped or surprised you stumped i think there are instances during the investigation where we certainly have been stumped and I was talking about how essentially for us, we need to exhibit that resilience that we expect to see in the future as well, because you know, on the really tough days, on the slow days, on the days where our original plans or hunches haven't really panned out, we have to be able to bounce back and pivot and test out a few different a few additional hypotheses before we we are able to progress. So yes, they have done things that have been unpredictable and and of course, it is one of those things. I say so I don't want to give too much away, but obviously, people are very much steering away from a comfort zone and from people they know that makes them less predictable and therefore more difficult to track.
0: Your world is all about technology. Now, everyone's confronted with the burgeoning world of AI and how it's sort of seemingly going to overtake us. Does it affect your world? And what are your thoughts on it?
1: AI excites me, to be honest, Sandra. So I think that, yes, in terms of the the hunted world, technology is a huge part of it. People who understand how to leverage that in the most effective way would tend to be more successful. But I would argue that that also happens in the real world. You know, We can be fearful of the technology that we have at our disposal, or we can really seek to understand its potential and work alongside it. What I understand about AI, and I delve into it almost daily, is that it is here really to help us accelerate, automate some of the things that are kind of boring for us or you know, that we need to do at scale but augment our ability to get things done because it has that potential. So I don't fear it. I think that we need to be smart about how we use it, use appropriate governance and embrace it.
0: What sort of impact is that having on security at the moment or that you can foresee?
1: I think that is a work in progress in terms of how that will pan out. And I think the challenge at the moment is that we know it's going to have some impact. The extent of it is as yet uncertain but it also means that uh, from a law enforcement perspective, we need to be able to leverage you know, the use of AI and an- look, not only anticipate how it may be used to disrupt society, if you like, but also anticipate how AI can be used to counter that because we are gonna get to a point where AI needs to counter AI. We can't approach that from traditional methods. So there's a lot of uncertainty, but, but something is coming. Small steps. That's right. But also, you know, the, there are ways, the big change, and this is this is one of the things that I keep getting told of late, is that AI has been around for decades, right? The big, big change that we've observed in the last few months is that it's been democratized. So everybody can join the bandwagon. We can all use it. Uh, it's interactive, but it's generative, right? So there's new content out there. And so we have to be cognizant of some of the, the fun, interesting, useful elements of it, as well as some of the risks. Down the track, are we gonna be able to discern what is true and what's AI generated? Are we going to be able to tell you know, if a video or if a picture or if a voice is the real person or if it isn't? And what are we doing about that? So there are risks, absolutely. I'm not saying it's all great, but there are some really great things that can come out of it if we do it well thoughtfully and carefully.
0: Okay, I'll try and take that on board, Carla, but it is difficult because the world keeps telling us it's a scary future. (laughs) Uh, When it comes to security, and I think it's uh, something we all deal with all the time, what's your top advice for people when they're navigating the technological world? And what are the key things you do to make sure that you're safe and secure? Because you know how devious people can be. Absolutely
1: and i almost think that if we're willing to put ourselves out there we have to accept a level of risk i think that is the reality and it's something that i've grappled with being on hunted i have to say because i mean obviously i'm putting my face out there there are things known about me that haven't been out there before i think in terms of being realistic about you know yes you need to have good privacy settings on the apps that you're using the the, social media platforms etc but ultimately we need to expect that the things that we put out there are going to be accessible to anyone, even those who might intend to do harm. So we have to be really careful about what's out there. Interestingly enough, you know, I've seen situations where social media can work for good as well. So I've seen how useful that can be in a police investigation, for instance, where people might take a photo. And inadvertently give away their location without thinking that that's going to be available to police, both in terms of their geolocation data, and even if that isn't necessarily available, you know, there's background things that are discernible. There is a level of risk that we are going to have to accept if we're going to put ourselves out there. Just expect that anyone is going to have access to that data.
0: Look, many years ago, I was a, a victim of of crime, and um, the police at the time really encourage me to live essentially by the rules of a needs-to-know basis. So before I gave anything away, I would ask myself, do you really need to know that level of detail? And I, I enjoy social media, but I don't put a lot of my personal life out there, and I never really have. But I do think a lot of young people make a mistake, and I'm wanting your view of this, of, of literally putting it all out there and you can't get it back
1: absolutely and particularly put together it's like one post you might say well it's one post it really doesn't tell people much about me or you know that one time i gave a little bit more away but that in itself you know the pattern of behavior that people are able to observe online is almost of most value you know they can see the way that you normally post things they can see the things that are important to you they can see the people that are around you are the sort of locations that you like to spend time in. So a lot can be discerned. Even if you're not outwardly saying the things, people can put a picture together about who you are based on on those posts. And it is, it sounds a little bit scary. You know, I have a child myself, not quite a teenager yet. And I think about those kind of things a lot. You know, what is it that is useful that I can teach her about her own safety and about the boundaries that need to be in place for her own safety going forward. So can you share some of those conversations
0: that you have with her? What guidelines would you like a lot
1: of parents to to consider? Because
0: you know how bad it can be when when it's out of control.
1: Yeah, and to go back to a question that you asked earlier, one of the cases that I did not directly work on but have been exposed to and I think has stuck with me for such a long time It's the case of Carly Ryan, who was lured online, who was groomed online and ultimately murdered by somebody she thought was somebody else. The reason I mention that is because one of the things that I will always talk to my daughter about is that it is important for her to be really sure and be really clear about who it is that she's talking about. So the things that I would say to parents and certainly the things that I say to her is, I'm really sorry that you're gonna have to disable the chat on that game that you want to play but I don't know who's going to be reaching out to you. We actually don't know if that child is the same age as you or is somebody completely different pretending to be that. The other thing is really to stay on the platforms that you have told your parents that you're going to be on. So one of the tactics that people who intend to do harm to children will use is to try and lure you away and offer you things that are attractive to you that they've got to know about by interacting with you on the original platform. They'll offer additional attention, additional, I don't know, pets as my daughter keeps telling me you know just currency that makes sense to um to children to lure them away from the safety of that game and of their peers and of a familiar environment and the other thing that we really can't get away from is really low tech sandra it's just talking you know really understanding what it is that our children are doing online keeping the the dialogue open so even when they start to, that maybe they step a little bit out of line or they do things that we don't agree with, we still need to be able to have that conversation. So not the moral panic immediately, allow them the space to talk and then help them navigate that situation and anticipate that there'll be another one.
0: When I mentioned earlier about being a victim of crime, one of the things that the police said to me at the time was, particularly for women, it, it, you're often assaulted or confronted Essentially, by someone you know you know, or someone in your circle, and we know the scourge of domestic violence in, in Australia is, is just at record and uncomfortable levels, but they, they said to me that most of us are such creatures of habit that it's very easy for people to work out where you're most vulnerable, and it's usually leaving work or leaving home.
1: True? Yes. First of all, can I just say I'm very sorry that that happened to you. Thank you. I hate that for you. but Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are absolutely creatures of habit. You've you've reminded me of something actually early on. One of my supervisors in my my first job with Injustice said to us, when you drive home, make sure you drive home a different way every day. And after a while, when you start getting comfortable, you go, oh, is that really necessary? Who's really going to (laughs) know? But it absolutely is. It's a kind of an easy safety measure, right? Exactly. Offenders, when they are motivated to offend, are masterful at identifying vulnerability so whilst police may have been well-intentioned in saying that to you I think that those are the kind of statements that also get them into trouble in terms of saying like there's something inherently wrong with what you're doing putting yourself out there as you know as vulnerable which is not the case you know we go on living our lives and the problem is with the person trying to harm us not with us
0: and I didn't take it that way at all I must admit but I understand where you're coming from What they, I think, were saying to me is that this person watched a pattern of behaviour and I had a fairly rigid routine. Many of us do, Mm. without realising how vulnerable we make ourselves by doing what we do in the same fashion, the same way every day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because to me, one of the times that I probably have felt the most vulnerable is not so much sort of leaving work, but actually arriving at home and that distance between like to the front door always feels long. Yeah.
0: Well, mine did happen just as I got home. So they had clearly been watching me and found the pattern of behavior. I'm a firm believer, and I'm curious about this, what your thoughts are in listening to your instincts. If something doesn't feel right, you really do need to tune in and do something about it. Like just don't ignore those instincts. How powerful have you found that over the years in in the work you do?
1: Absolutely powerful. I think at this stage in my career and in my life, I would say I have become an even greater believer. I think that, you know, the longer I'm in this job and the older that I get, the more I believe in exactly what you've just said. And, you know, interestingly, one of the other things that I would say to younger people and certainly things that I say to my daughter, it's yes, generally we try and teach children good manners and, you know, good compliance and, you know, the niceties of society. But it's better to not be nice or to do something that you think in that moment might come across a little bit rude than it is to counter your own instinct that something is wrong. You're not going to get in trouble for being rude if you think that that particular thing was unsafe for you or that particular person was unsafe for you. And we can work through it. It's not the end of the world. But going against what you feel in your gut is unsafe and unsavory, there's no need for that the sooner that we can gain the confidence to, to back ourselves in that way, the better.
0: What do you love about the job?
1: It's challenging, but always interesting. I used to say in, in one of the first jobs that I had that if I stopped learning, I would leave. You know, I was in that job for eight years and I didn't stop learning and that's not why I left. I was just afraid that I was just going to be, you know, in that one job for the rest of my life. But I'm still learning about that same stuff. There is new... Material. There are different ways of thinking. There are debates in the literature about different things. I'm never going to know everything, and I love that. I am the eternal student. I think, and just like I've had to pivot and learn a lot more about technology and understand the big deal about AI, I will continue to learn about people. There are infinite combinations of things that happen in people, and I will always be fascinated by this.
0: Where's your elevator pitch, Carla, about what's so great about the series Hunter? Oh, God. I should have thought about this, shouldn't I? Can I just say what I what I love about Hunted is it's it's family friendly. You can get involved and work as a team or on your own to try and solve the puzzle. Yes. Can't you? Yes. I mean, that's the great hook of the whole thing. Yes.
1: And I mean, look, solving the puzzle is uh, probably an extremely powerful hook for, for many of us. And it, I mean, I've already shared with you that that's how I sort of think about my big assessments, you know, it's a puzzle. There's lots of different pieces. What's the answer here? But um, with Hunted, I think that there there are layers of complexity and you can engage in it as much or as little as you like, and you can back different people, right? Like there's the the expert side of things in terms of how you would tackle it. And there's a whole lot of methodology on display. And there's a lot of interesting types of careers that are on display, I think from the Hunter side. But The beauty of the fugitive side is that they have free license to make a plan as creative and as out there as they can. And you're going to see different personalities being challenged in different ways. It really is a huge human experiment, but in a family-friendly way.
0: And what's it been like for you seeing yourself on the big screen all of a sudden? We're all our own worst critics. Mm -hmm. How's the journey been for you?
1: Yeah, that was a lot of cringe. I think that I've had to overcome that a little bit i've had to kind of get over myself to be able to enjoy the show for what it is and actually i'm very comfortable with the fact that it's not about us as characters or as people that it's about us as a team that's the part that i really enjoy and i cannot tell you when i was saying before like i'm sort of the perpetual student i feel the same in the hunted world because i've dealt with so many of the of the people that i work with on on hunted Are just so incredibly talented and dedicated and amazing at the work that they do and i've learned so much from them and believe it or not and i don't know if my boss would believe it but i tell her this all the time that the experience has helped me in the job that i do now because the kind of conversations that i've had with our amazing cyber team for instance with ben owen about their open source intelligence world like there is just so much so much richness in that room that I just feel incredibly fortunate and very much realise that the whole thing is not about me. So that's how I get through
0: it. <laughs> what I love is that you take us on your journey as well as the fugitives, right? So we're, we're straddling the fence, trying to work out you know, which side we're on. Do you find that that's kind of the reaction you get from a lot of people or am I just an odd one?
1: I think you're being very generous, Sandra. I think a lot of people are very clearly backing their own team, like on the fugitive side. And like, even my friends say to me, like, I love you, but I'm going to back the fugitives. Like I want them to get away. <laughs> so
0: yeah, But you're taking me on that journey of understanding, you know, the cyber world and, and all of the stuff that, that, that has to play out. I mean, that's, I think that's just really interesting from a viewer's perspective. It's not just the game, it's everything mm. you learn on the way.
1: That's right. And that part is real. And I think that's what I really love about Hunted. You know, it's not, we're not just making things up. We're not pretending that we've got technology that we don't have. We're not pretending that we've got the means that we don't have. Like those things are real. And what I'm hoping out of that is that, yes, people can see the possibilities in those careers. And, you know, if I think back to the original motivation for this or what were the kind of points in the plus side for doing something like this, it was, you know, people can see a woman that's older, that's ethnic, on TV doing this with police. That they just, you know, it isn't necess- It's outside of most people's experience. Can I just say one thing? And this is something that I haven't really talked about. My husband really brought to my attention for the, I think, for the first time, obviously a while ago now. But I guess I feel pretty proud of where I've got to and the experiences I've had up to and including the show. With the realisation that actually I started my life off being a Spanish speaker in a third world country and I came here as a refugee not knowing how to speak English and I, the reason I, I mention that is because for some reason it's never really been something that I talk about in my professional life and I'm told that it matters. It does
0: matter. That's, that's an extraordinary journey. <laughs> And you just sort of, you know, <laughs> thrown it in at the eleventh hour. Oh yeah. By the way, I arrived here. I couldn't speak English. I was a refugee, Spanish-speaking migrant who um, made my way to where you have and achieved, you know, tremendous things. When you look back on all of that, how much do you think it, it shaped you?
1: I think it shaped me a lot. I didn't think about it as I was growing up and studying, making the, the decisions that I made. But I think. You know, it was very cognizant always about everything that my parents had given up in their own country to come here. We had a pretty comfortable life; we were happy, and I wasn't happy about leaving that country to come to a completely unknown place where I couldn't speak the language. I mean, I wasn't thrilled about that, but I always felt like I owed to them my best effort, and hopefully, I mean, certainly what they tell me, if I'm lucky enough to have them still, is that I have made them proud and and put in the effort that they were hoping for. The reason that they left a war-torn country at the time was to give their children the best opportunity. And so they feel like I have hopefully, yeah, proven to them that they did the right thing.
0: Clearly it's important to you as it is to me. And that's why we have such a diverse range of women on the podcast is to say, we all matter. We're all different. We all make our own way, Mm. but we do need to see a range of women from different ethnicities, age groups, industries doing their thing. That's what Short Black is about, Carla. It's about celebrating women like you mm-hmm. who have, you know, overcome challenges, clearly been very resilient, but you also appreciate the importance of being seen and being representative, and diversity and inclusion is significant. Mm. It
1: matters. It took me a long time to understand that, Sandra, which seems crazy because I'm about as diverse as it gets (laughs) um you know I never thought about that you know about even being disadvantaged in any way like I just thought well that's where I'm going if I put in the effort that's you know that's what's happening yeah I, I never sort of wavered in my belief that that was where I was going and what I needed to do and I could achieve it through hard work
0: well, well done and congratulations. Thank you. You know, it's a story and it's an example for, for many other young girls looking up, realising that there's so many opportunities and careers. And I'm hoping that, you know, our listeners will realise that you've got to chase your dream. and That's exactly what you did. Thank you. We often hear the phrase, you can't be what you can't see. But as you say, you know, a strong female lead in a, a national TV show. That says a lot. Dr. Carla Lopez, it's just been a, a real journey to actually have you on Short Black not just as the forensic psychologist, but as the strong woman who I know you are. Thanks for sharing some time with us here. We've really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you so much, Sandra.
0: You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.